Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the best podcast ever in the world. Talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 78. I feel like he needs a role model to aspire to. I just had this feeling like, what would your auntie, you know, his auntie, who he seemed to have a, a sort of a respect for his auntie, or at least what she thought of him. And I had this thought, like, what would she think of Mildred? You know, just imagine you had to introduce Mildred to your poor old departed auntie. And I'm not sure that she was exactly a role model for him, but someone to sort of... Mm, yeah, like... Illuminate the path forward. You know, I think deep down he knows that Mildred is not the path forward. And he doesn't really have anyone to reflect that off. Swims to the mum she said this, I am cautiously optimistic that this chapter is showing Philip to begin breaking free of his Mildred bondage based on this passage... He turned away and went back hopeless to his rooms. He might have known she would do this. The pain he was suffering was horrible, and the thought came to him that it would be better to finish the whole thing. He rebelled against it. It would be grotesque to kill himself on on account of a vulgar slut. He felt he would never overcome his passion, but he knew that after all, it was only a matter of time. Yep. Okay, cautiously optimistic, very cautiously I would suggest, because um, I just think, you know, even if he is breaking free of her, if she walked into the room, he'd be right back, you know, on his knees, groveling. So no matter how free of her he gets, he's always kind of under her thumb. He hasn't had the full revelation which will break him free of her properly, I don't think. Intrepid said this, a role model could help Philip, but Philip seems like he's past the point of being easily impressed, as he was by Haywood and Cromshaw. It would take quite the paragon to enrapture Philip now. Personally, I think work is the best therapy for him. Really good suggestion. I think I've been saying this for a while, like he just needs a, a hobby or an interest or a life, you know, he needs to be interested in something other than romance for just for a year, you know, move away from romance for a year, do something else. Adrathea said, I like the moment when Philip reflects on his philosophy that the purpose of life is to do what makes you happy and then decides that this philosophy wasn't useful. None of his readings or musings helped Philip learn how to process his emotions. He's looking for happiness without knowing what makes him happy. Nora would have been a good character to help Philip understand happiness. Unfortunately, Philip ended things with her. To his credit, Philip does realise that his other role models, his uncle, Haywood, and Cronshaw, are not happy people themselves. Laura Weistich said Nora would have been great, except he didn't really have feelings for her. If he had, the whole story may have been quite different. Um, That's the saddest part of this story, isn't it, that... Nora could have been so he could have been they could have been so good together. And dumb old Philip dumbed his way out of it. Dumb dumb dummy dummy dum dum. Alright, now let's read chapter seventy nine. Seventy-nine. Philip went up to London a couple of days before the session began in order to find himself rooms. He hunted about the streets that led out of the Westminster Bridge Road, but their dinginess was distasteful to him. 
and at last he found one in Kensington which had a quiet and old world air. It reminded one of a little a little of the London which Thackeray knew on that side of the river, and in the Kennington Road, through which the great Baroche of the New Comes must have passed as it drove the family to the west of London, the plane trees were bursting into leaf. The houses in the street which Philip fixed up upon were two-storied, and in most of the windows was a notice of to state that lodgings were to let. He knocked at one which announced that the lodgings were unfurnished, and he and was shown by an austere, silent woman four very small rooms, in one of which there was a kitchen range and a sink. The rent was nine shillings a week. Philip did not want so many rooms, but the rent was low, and he wished to settle down at once. He asked the landlady if she could keep that, the place clean for him and cook his breakfast, but she replied that she had enough work to do without that, and he was pleased rather than otherwise because he, she intimidated intimated that she wished to have nothing more to do with him than to receive his rent. She told him that if he re she told him that if he required at the grocer's round the corner, which was also a post office, he might hear of a woman who would do for him. Philip had a little furniture which he had gathered as he went along, an armchair that he had brought in Paris, and a table, a few drawings, and the small Persian rug which Cromshaw had given him. His uncle had offered a fold-up bed for which now that he no longer let his house in August he had no further use, and by spending ten, another ten pounds Philip bought himself whatever else was essential. He spent ten shillings on putting a corn-coloured paper in the room he was making his parlour, and he hung on the walls a sketch which Lawson had given him of a Quai de Grand Augustins and the photograph of Odalisque by Ingres and Manet's Olympia, which in Paris had been the objects of his contemplation while he shaved. To remind himself that he, had, he too had once been engaged in the practice of art, he put up a charcoal drawing of the young Spaniard Miguel Aguirre. It was the best thing he had ever done, a nude standing with clenched hands, his feet gripping the floor with a peculiar force, and on his face that air of determination which had been so impressive, and though Philip, after the long interval, saw very well the defects of his work, its associations made him look upon it with tolerance. He wondered what had happened to Miguel. There is nothing so terrible as the pursuit of art by those who have no talent. Perhaps worn out by exposure, starvation, disease, he had found an end in some hospital, or in an access of despair had sought death in a turbid scene. But perhaps with his southern instability... He had given up the struggle of his own accord, and now a clerk in some office in Madrid turned his fervent rhetoric to politics and bullfighting. Philip asked Lawson and Hayward to come and see his new rooms, and they came, one with a bottle of whiskey, the other with a pâté de foie gras, and he was delighted when they praised his taste. He would have invited the Scotch stockbreaker too, but he had only three chairs and thus could entertain only a definite number of guests. Lawson was aware that, through him, Philip had become very friendly with Nora Nesbitt, and now remarked that he had run across her a few days before. Phil oh, uh, she was asking how you were. Philip flushed at the mention of her name. He could not get himself out of the awkward habit of reddening when he was embarrassed, and Lawson looked at him quizzically. 
Lawson, who now spent most of the year in London, had so far surrendered to his environment to wear his hair short and to dress himself in a neat serge suit and a bowler hat. I gather that all is over between you, he said. I've not seen her in months. She was looking rather nice. She had a very smart hat on, which of which, with a lot of white ostrich feathers on it, she must be doing pretty well. Philip changed the conversation, but he kept thinking of her, and after an interval, when the three of them were talking of something else, he asked suddenly, Did you gather that Nora was angry with me? Not a bit. She talked very nicely of you. I've got half a mind to go and see her. She won't eat you. Philip had thought of Nora often when Mildred left him. His first thought was of her, and he told himself bitterly that she would never have treated him so. His impulse was to go to her. He could depend on her pity, but he was ashamed. She had been good to him always. He had treated her abominably. If I had only had the sense to stick to her, he said to himself. <coughs> Excuse me. Afterwards, when Lawson and Haywood had gone and he was smoking a last pipe before going to bed. He remembered the pleasant hours they had spent together in the cosy sitting room in the Vincent Square, their visits to the galleries and to the play, and the charming evenings of intimate conversation. He recollected her solicitude for his welfare and her interest in all that concerned him. She had loved him with a love that was kind and lasting. There was more than sensuality in it. It was almost maternal. He had always known that it was a precious thing for which, with all his soul, he should thank the gods. He made up his mind to throw himself on her mercy. She must have suffered horribly, but he felt she had the greatness of heart to forgive him. She was incapable of malice. Should he write to her? No. He would break in on her suddenly and cast himself at her feet. He knew that when the time came... He would feel too shy to perform such a dramatic gesture, but that was how he liked to think of it, and tell her that if she would take him back, she might rely on him forever. He was cured of that hateful disease from which he had suffered. He knew her worth, and now she might trust him. His imagination leaped forward to the future. He pictured himself rowing with her on the river on Sundays. He would take her to Greenwich. He had never forgotten that delightful excursion with Haywood, and the beauty of the Port of London remained a permanent treasure in his recollection, and on the warm summer afternoons they would sit in the park together and talk. He laughed to himself as he remembered her gay chatter, which poured out like a brook bubbling over with little stones, amusing, flippant, and full of character. The agony he had suffered would pass from his mind like a bad dream, but when the next day about tea time an hour at which he was a pretty certain to find Nora at home, he knocked at her door. His courage suddenly failed him. Was it possible for her to forgive him? It would be abominable of him to force himself on her presence. The door was opened by a maid, new since he had been in the habit of calling every day, and he inquired if Mrs Nesbitt was in. Will you ask her if she could see Mr Carey? He said, I'll wait here. The maid ran upstairs and in a moment clattered down again. Will you step up please, sir? Second floor front. I know, said Philip with a slight smile. He went with a fluttering heart. He knocked at the door. Come in, said the well-known cheerful voice. It seemed to say, come in, do a new life of peace and happiness. When he entered, Nora stepped forward to greet him. She shook hands with him as if they had parted the day before. A man stood up. Mr. Carey, Mr. Kingsford. Philip, bitterly disappointed at not finding her alone, sat down and took stock of the stranger. He had never heard her mention his name but he seemed to Philip to occupy his chair as though he were very much at home. 
He was a man of forty, clean-shaven, with long fair hair, very neatly plastered down, and the reddish skin of and pale, tired eyes which fair men get when their youth has passed. He had a large nose, a large mouth, and the bones of his face were prominent, and he was heavily made. He was a man of more than average height, and broad-shouldered. "'I was wondering what had become of you,' said Nora, in her sprightly manner. "'I met Mr. Lawson the other day, did he tell you, and I informed him that it was really high time you came to see me again.' Philip could see no shadow of embarrassment in her countenance, and he admired the use with which she carried off an encounter, of which himself felt the intense awkwardness. She gave him tea. She was about to put sugar in it when he stopped her. Oh, how stupid of me, she cried. I forgot. He did not believe that. She must remember quite well that he never took sugar in his tea. He accepted the incident as a sign that her nonchalance was affected. The conversation which Philip had interrupted went on, and presently he began to feel a little in the way. Kingsford took no particular notice of him. He talked fluently and well, not without humour, but with a slightly dogmatic manner. He was a journalist. It appeared and he was he was a journalist, it appeared, and had something amusing to say on every topic that was touched upon, but it exasperated Philip to find himself edged out of the conversation. He was determined to stay the visitor out. He wondered if he admired Nora. In the old days they had often talked of the men who wanted to flirt with her and had laughed at them together. Philip tried to bring back the conversation to matters which only he and Nora knew about, but each time the journalist broke in and succeeded in drawing it away to a subject upon which Philip was forced to be silent. He grew faintly angry with Nora, for she must see he was being made ridiculous, but perhaps she was inflicting this upon him as a punishment, and with this thought he regained his good humour. At last, however, the clock struck six and Kingsford got up. I must go, he said. Nora shook hands with him and accompanied him to the landing. She shut the door behind her and stood outside for a couple of minutes. Philip wondered what they were talking about. "'Who is Mr. Kingford?' he asked cheerfully when she returned. "'Oh, he's the editor of one of Harmsworth's magazines. He's been taking a good deal of my work lately.' I thought he was never going. "'I'm glad you stayed. I wanted to have a talk with you.' She curled herself into a large armchair, feet at and all, in a way her small size made possible, and lit a cigarette. He smiled when he saw her assume the attitude which had always amused him. You look just like a cat. She gave him a flash of her dark, fine eyes. I really ought to break myself of the habit. It is absurd to behave like a child when you are my age, but I'm comfortable with my legs under me. It's awfully jolly to be sitting in this room again, said Philip happily. You don't know how I've missed it. Why on earth didn't you come before, she asked gaily. I was afraid to, he said, reddening. She gave him a look of full of kindness. Her lips outlined a charming smile. You needn't have been. He hesitated for a moment. His heart beat quickly. Do you remember the last time we met? I treated you awfully badly. I'm dreadfully ashamed of myself. She looked at him steadily. She did not answer. He was losing his head. He seemed to have come on an errand, and of which he was only now realising the outrageousness. She did not help him, and he could only blurt out bluntly, Can you ever forgive me? The impetuous, then impetuously he told her that Mildred had left him and that his unhappiness had been so great that he almost killed himself. He told her of all that had happened between them, of the birth of the child and of the meeting of Griffiths, of his folly and his trust and his immense deception. He told her how often he had thought of her kindness and of her love and how bitterly he had regretted throwing it all away. He had only been happy when he was with her and he knew now how great was her worth. 
His voice was hoarse with emotion. Sometimes he was so ashamed of what he was saying that he spoke with his eyes fixed on the ground. His face was distorted with pain, and yet he felt it a strange relief to speak. He asked, at last he finished. He flung himself back in his chair, exhausted and waited. He had concealed nothing, and even in his self-abasement, he had striven to make himself more despicable than he had already been. He was surprised that she did not speak, and at last he raised his eyes. She was not looking at him. Her face was quite white, and she seemed to be lost in thought. Haven't you got anything to say to me? She started, she started and reddened. I'm afraid you've had a rotten time, she said. I'm dreadfully sorry. She seemed about to go on, but she stopped, and again he waited. At length, she seemed to force herself to speak. I'm engaged to be married to Mr. Kingsford. Why didn't you tell me at once, he cried. You needn't have allowed me to humiliate myself before you. I'm sorry, I couldn't stop you. I met him soon after you. She seemed to search for an expression that should not wound him. Told me your friend had come back. I was very wretched for a bit. He was extremely kind to me. He knew someone had made me suffer, of course. He doesn't know it was you, and I don't know what I should have done without him. And suddenly I felt I couldn't go on working, working, working. I was so tired, I felt so ill. I told him about my husband. He offered to give me the money to get my divorce, if I would marry him as soon as I could. He had a very good job, and it wouldn't be necessary for me to do anything unless I wanted to. He was so fond of me and so anxious to take care of me. I was awfully touched, and now I'm very, very fond of him. Have you got your divorce then? asked Philip. I've got the decree Nisi. It'll be made absolute in July, and then we're going to be married at once. For some time, Philip did not say anything. I wish I hadn't made such a fool of myself, he muttered at length. He was thinking of his long, humiliating confession. She looked at him curiously. You were never really in love with me, she said. It's not very pleasant being in love. But he was always able to recover himself quickly, and getting up now and holding out his hand, he said, I hope you'll be happy. After all, it's the best thing that could have happened to you. She looked a little wistfully at him as she stood, as she took his hand and held it. You'll come and see me again, won't you? she asked. No, he said, shaking his head. It would make me too envious to see you happy. He walked slowly away from her house. After all, she was right when she said he had never loved her. He was disappointed, irritated even, but his vanity was more affected than his heart. He knew that himself. And presently, he grew conscious that the gods had played a very good practical joke on him, and he laughed at himself mirthlessly. It is not very comfortable to have the gift of being amused at one's own absurdity. Alright, there we go. There's another chapter done. Poor old Philip the Idiot. Idiot Phil, we call him. Have your say about Idiot Phil at the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.